pop culture podcast by Fantastic Geek. Today we'll be talking about the Ant-Man film and my name is Matt and usually joining me is Pete, although he's he, he's not here yet. I'm down here. Oh, hang on one second. <clears throat> uh, sorry about that, Matt. You know, you really got to lock your doors. <laughs> Ant-Man brought to you here by Orkin Pest Services. If you got ants, man, send in the Orkin Man. Uh, well done, Pete. Well done. Well, we catch you up on what went down, Matt. Opening 1989, and I believe that is the skeleton of the Triskelion. Indeed, it is a really, really nice touch. We're coming off of Avengers Age of Ultron, which by many estimations, myself included, was certainly fine and fun, but was a bit uh, overweight from its connections past and future to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This still starts with one of those connections, but it's so tight and it's so timely. Uh, I know not everybody recognized it as the Triskelion, but it was great to see it and even better, Pete, to see who was in there. Yes, among others, Agent Peggy Carter played uh, by Haley Atwell in her fourth different incarnation of the character, which uh, has got to set some kind of record, as well as the return of another um, Howard Stark. Certainly great to see John Slattery back. Uh, his hair a bit shorter than it was uh, when, when last Mad Men fans saw him, but great to see him uh, not with the Mad Men, but in the Ant-Man. I didn't get any of those references to that TV show, but away we go. Uh, I love the introduction of um, Pym here, uh, Hank Pym, uh, and certainly the wizardry, Matt, to make him appear just like uh, Gordon Gecko stepped off <laughs> the uh, Wall Street that's the best de-aging effect I've seen. I know it's not, you know, a super, uh, I don't say well done, but it's not, it's not something that you see often. Um, certainly uh, X3 comes to mind, um, uh, Benjamin Button, some others in there. But um, it, it, it looked so convincing. There would be the briefest moments for half a second you'd say, oh, that looks, oh, no, no, no. Now it genuinely looks like him. Um Tron 2 is an example where it doesn't quite work, uh, but he looks fantastic in, 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 in that and uh, certainly a compelling scene where, uh, where he takes a stand for what is right when it comes to the Pym particles. And when we introduce Scott Lang there in the prison, love the misdirection with the, the punching. We expect a fight here, of course come to learn that this is a uh, debarkation uh, ritual here to uh, to take a punch and to give a punch from this big, huge convict. And Matt, the thing that stands out for me about the Scott Lang story and so much informed by the humor and the performance of our man here, Paul Rudd, who I think was excellently cast, this is Marvel's better to this date um con with a daughter story sandman i'm looking at you <laughs> it's 
in this scene, in the prison uh, debarkation scene, it's the first of many where I felt like I was sitting in the theater kind of aware of the hand of the writer a bit, but it works time and time again. You know, it's kind of a bit obvious. Oh, now it's actually a goodbye, a goodbye from prison, an opportunity to show that he's well liked, that he's a nice guy, that when he meets up with his friend, his friend is former is, is a former con as well. You can kind of see the the writer's footsteps there, but it's not it's not kind of egregious. And um, as you said, Pete, just pulled off with such charm and and kind of not comedy, you know, set up punchline humor from Paul Rudd. But just he's a funny guy in the real world, kind of almost something I haven't quite seen since Ghostbusters, where it's just kind of funny people in the real world. And to get his backstory that, you know, more of a Robin Hood that he had, you know, gone against a a company, essentially a whistleblower uh, mentality. And that's what he went away for um, gives us our statement of theme that we move towards in the early act. From zero to hero is the, uh, the direction that we are clearly headed. Pete, we we then get to meet uh, more of the uh, the Michael Pena character. We also get to see uh, Ti, who's part of the part of the crew here. Uh, also, the uh, the Russian character as well. And I was initially concerned that that these three characters um, were perhaps a little little um, one note, perhaps a- approaching stereotype. But I don't think it ever kind of became a real concern. They just came across as you know just authentic and and jovial people and really quickly despite the fact that there's this pressure here on on scott lang to get back in the to get back in the game and he's resisting it um you get this sense from his from his uh roommate and his roommate's friends you know the the future uh the future crew here that that they're still nice guys even though they have a plan to to break into some old guy's house they are and the character of Luis here played by Michael Pena to get the roundabout later that you know once he goes undercover as the uh, security guard with his foolproof plan to whistle as he's undercover so that nobody knows he's up to no good to rescue a guy from a building that's about to explode on top of the excellent device used twice of him uh, going back and narrating these outstanding uh, expositionally uh, placed moments to give us nuggets. You know, this thing, and then there was a smoking hot journalism girl, and then the guy said yes. I read somewhere that that, that was um... – I don't want to say added late in the game, but that was not part of the script for a super long time. And it was added by like a couple of producers who wrote that, that dialogue. I mean, that, that tied the movie together so well, particularly since you got to see it um, at least twice, right? It's, it's the one in the beginning and the one at the end. So it, it tied things together so well. And it kind of, as you said, Pete, it's that magic word that we deal with all the time, exposition. You have to have it there to explain things to the audience, but you don't want to make it laborious where it's, you know, hey, here's the new guy who we will explain things to. And and it just, it flew with Michael Pena here. 
And, you know, you referenced Age of Ultron before, which for what it is was fine and referenced here in the film, you know, the Avengers dropping cities on people and a, a lukewarm, OK, Avengers movie is just that it's it's OK. But when you think about the movie we're talking about now in Ant-Man and you're thinking about the movie before that. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, you had Marvel's two riskiest propositions to date, and they've both been home runs. The humor here carried across excellently. Things move at the clip that they need to. The thing we're reading over and over again is there's far more emotion in this movie than people expected. You know, they knew they would get the comedic going in. But really done, but obviously on a much smaller scale. And I thought that it it walked such a perfect line. I would dare say that this is the most fun I've had at a Marvel movie since the original Iron Man. Um, it, you know that that dialogue that was funny often, nonetheless, could just could just hit you in the gut. Whether it's you know the the, the father daughter relationships in the film. Um, whether it's the the three dimensionality that uh, that um, is brought to the character of, of uh, Paxton by uh, Bobby Cannavale, a character that should just be you know should just be completely black and white, no pun intended for his you know police status there, but just somebody who's going to be well. I moved in. I'm the good husband now. You're the bad ex husband. Get out of here. There's a sympathy to him. And Pete, did you know that Bobby Cannavale uh, was brought in basically at the last minute because the original guy, Patrick Wilson, had to drop out of the role when when there was a teensy filming delay with, you know, losing the director? I did. And I want to reference two things. One, that this movie is as successful as it is given the most troubled production Marvel's had maybe since Iron Man 2, maybe ever in this Marvel Cinematic Universe, certainly says something that Edgar Wright had had this labor of love and, and carried it so far to have a falling out. He still gets the screenplay credit. He's still one of the producers. But Peyton Reed coming in, as you mentioned, the production delay because of the changeover. And, you know, back to Cannavale here, I thought excellently cast – um, really against type because we're used to seeing him in heavy, you know, uh, bad guy type of roles and to be the, the, the law, albeit in an antagonistic uh, way. And we'll look at that in our uh, dossier section, you know, and the, uh, <clears throat> the mate here to, um, to Judy Greer's uh, ex-wife character who is told uh, Lang that uh he has to say goodbye to these. And I mean, even that that story point was just done in a really, uh, I think, realistic way. You know, I mean, a, a responsible uh, parent in, in the, uh, the Judy Greer character's um, place there, you know, is not going to make a scene at the at the birthday party. But it's just clear, like, you can't be here. And she lays out, here are all your deficiencies as, a, you know, as a father and as an ex-con and so on and so forth. And uh, even though Pete, I know some people aren't the biggest Judy Greer fans in the world, I thought that um, 
despite being known as a comedic actress, they just kind of used her for the most part to just play to play the character of of mom, and and she did a great job. And the non tropey, I don't like you. I don't want you to succeed. Uh, you can't be around ever. You can no longer be in her life. Cutting against that makes it all the more effective, despite my lack of affinity for this actress and turning up in everything, Jurassic World, et cetera, et cetera. Say goodbye to these, Michael. Pete, let's now uh, talk about certainly a familiar face to to super longtime listeners of the various podcasts. Great seeing Evangeline Lilly uh, back here. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that... Uh, yeah, once she once she got back from the island, I'm glad she was able to settle down in a nice science job. I just wish we could find out what Kate did. Run, um, great to see her. I, we we know from 121 episodes of Lost, as well as some of her other film work, that that she's capable of a variety of emotions. I felt here then knowing that she does have all these acting talents, that whether it was the story, the direction, uh, whatever it might be, for much of the movie, she's not quite one note, but it's just kind of like, I'm constantly scowling and angry at you, dad, and angry at you, de facto dad's adopted son who I might kiss at the end of the movie. Like, it was just, they weren't asking her to do very much for much of the movie. It's what it needed to be, um you know, to, to see her in the different haircut and really kind of cast in a different type of role than she's used to playing. Uh, there was a little bit of a feeling out process, obviously. Um, it's not that I found it predictable, but the angst over the, the mother's loss, I'm not going to say death, and uh, where it ultimately goes, I think, was relatively straightforward. Yeah, I, I don't disagree at all. I just kind of, I, I don't know. I just feel like they could have done more with her as an actress, but I guess that's not what the character required. So them's the breaks. Well, we're going to see more of her, obviously. Oh, it's about darn time, Pete. But we'll get to that all in, all in the good time. Matt, much has been made that this is Marvel's most exciting third act of a film in a long time. And again, coming off Avengers, which fell just a little bit short with uh, with Age of Ultron, this is a rousing, uh, funny, um, really heartfelt completion to a movie that projects us forward. You know, the, the, the story type of a heist film, it's always going to feel both uh, familiar and I think comforting to a certain degree because, you know, the hero is going to you know run into different twists and turns. And but it's you know, it's this notion of getting inside the box that you're not supposed to get into and then getting the thing and getting out of there, you know, just barely and, and whatnot. Um, but I, I agree with you. I mean, very, very exciting. The the. The, the notion of you know that some of the real forces behind the uh behind uh the purchase and whatnot you know we'll get to that in a little bit but back at the house there i thought it was so fitting here we have this you know i mean no pun intended here we have a story that is big in scale in terms of weapons and energy and and whatnot but we end 
back at the house and then, you know, back under the, the, the family roof. Um, the, the, the size changes there with Thomas, the tank, uh, engine and, and the ant and whatnot, just a ton of fun. So what are your thoughts, Pete? I have a logistical question. Uh, apart from shrinking the sheep there, uh, in his quest to, uh, use his particles, uh, cross to shrink people, uh, in the special little container, how, when they were in the helicopter and Lang had, uh, been pushed out, he's holding on to a belt, did Cross manage to get himself into the tiny suit in the briefcase there in what seemed like seconds? Did he make the suit big, jump into it, and then get uh, into it that way? Did he shrink him? Like, I was very much confused by that development. <laughs> I think that... Um... I think that the answer perhaps lies in the real world, which is there was an Ant-Man physical suit that that uh, Paul Rudd wore. However, Corey Stahl did a motion capture suit similar to what they do for Iron Man, where he's basically just in, you know, like a sweatsuit and he's got some doodads, you know, maybe taped to his face or shoulders or whatever it might be. And then they put the suit in on top of him later. I mentioned this because if that's the case, that means no one on the movie is thinking about hey we need a scene we need to fill the scene film the scene of him putting on the helmet that's just not the script supervisor's job that's not the effect person's job because their job is to go look there's Corey Stahl like in the you know in the sweatsuit with like shiny tape on his shoulders now we put a suit over that so the fact that it was nobody's job for him to to, to make sure that that was covered in the shot list for today um, might have been just why that little plot loophole exists there. It was no one's job. Yeah, it just it took me ever so slightly out of an otherwise really engrossing sequence from the heist of the lab to its destruction to the tank keychain to uh, the daughter's bedroom and this perilous battle on a locomotive with googly eyes. Well, and let's talk about that tank keychain for a moment. No clearer example of Chekhov's gun than it's shown, you know, he has it uh, when he first goes back into Pimtech. It's shown there and it's like, huh, well, that's, well, of course it's naturally there. He's picking up his keys and interesting keychain. Then it's shown again when Scott uses it to open the door. Um, which at the time I was like, oh, maybe that's why they have that interesting tank there to make it clear that that's his keys. Then it's shown a third time. And then the fourth time when he takes it out, when they need it most, it's, ah, you don't show a tank keychain in the first act without using it in the third act. It was cute. And I'm sure if we could go back and watch the sequences where Cross is, uh, looking at um, archival shield footage with uh, Ant-Man that uh, it was around there somewhere. Ooh, nice, uh, nice theory there. The dossier. A detailed look at our bad guys. Matt, let's begin, ironically, with S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, 
certainly here in the beginning, they are presented as, uh, shall we say, perhaps a bit suspiciously acting. I mean, I think that I think that Stark and and uh, Peggy Carter and uh, the third guy whose name escapes me at the moment, I think that they would argue, hey, we we need to maximize whatever assets we have. And that is logical. And if we choose to use it, not use it, you know, a la, say, the atomic bomb, you use it twice and you say, OK, I'm glad we have this. But now we're going to keep this away as a threat or et cetera, et cetera. Um, the notion here, though, that, you know, that we see is even with these good leaders at the top, there is this feeling that everybody on down the chain you can't trust. And uh, we certainly know that know that well um, with you know, the, the Marvel movies that took place chronologically after that 89 scene, but uh, in our past. Yes. And a uh, character whose name should escape all of us because he just doesn't make an impression other than being the guy that Hank Pym slams his face into the desk there. No surprise that he would wind up post um shield schism working for hydra and uh turning things over there planning to turn the cross technology and uh the ant-man suit over to them pete the imdb of course uh uh notes the character as mitchell carson played by uh, martin donovan the name mitchell carson in of itself is also just kind of one that i dare say is uh, is is built to slide out of your brain pretty quickly uh good on you though for martin donovan 87 uh acting credits in film and tv so probably a lot of those playing you know kind of government type guys pete also talking about other uh, government guys, we have a we have another character we want to hit up here. We do the aforementioned uh, Bobby Cannavale here playing the uh, husband and the stepdad here for uh, Lang's daughter Cassie, um, police officer uh, Jim Paxton. And uh, as mentioned before, I mean. A well-rounded character, despite not a lot of scenes, and of those scenes that he's in, uh, a number of them are kind of rather procedural. You know, we're taking you to jail, buddy. Shut your mouth, and all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, an example, as we've seen before, of just you know making the most of a making the most of a role. And um, Pete, I guess not surprising that at the end of the film, a film that takes place in San Francisco. Uh, in addition to uh, to the daughter Cassie having uh, having a mom there, she kind of ends up almost with two dads. Yes, and and one of them has uh, excellent eyebrows. <laughs> uh, that's true. Well, from great hair on the eyebrows to no hair on the head, Pete. Let's talk about Darren Cross. Yes, uh, Corey Stoll here in a breakout film role. Um, to get him coming off um, the House of Cards as the antagonist here, uh, cast to type in that uh, the mania of whatever particles and science he's messing around with as the the chemical link here uh, wreaking havoc with his life I thought really well done and a win for a guy who was a comic book nerd coming up to get to play and chew the scenes as this villain. 
roles like his in this film sometimes can be pretty unforgiving in that, you know, in addition to just being the villain. So, you know, we're not going to like him, but, you know, who cares? That's how villains are. But more importantly, we're going to spend so much more time in the story dealing with the ins and outs of our hero and our hero's relationships to uh, to everyone else. And, you know, the cute little, you know, oh, it's a suit. Should I put the suit on? And, you know, all of those things, the special effects moments that to have, you know, to have the bad guy then need to come in and go blah, 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 bad stuff. There's there's not always a lot of story room there. But Coristal did a great job kind of finding the... Um, I don't know the nooks and crannies, nooks and crannies of Cross's. Um, uh, I don't know Cross's slimy nature. You know the way he's he's inviting uh, the Michael Douglas character to see that. Oh, oops, we're renaming the building. Oops, this is going to be the moment of my greatest glory. Right. You know, uh, he he does a lot as as did Bobby Cannavale. He, he he does a lot with with not a not a huge role, but he makes it huge. There was a quick little uh not aside but just a moment he's in a scene in a restaurant with uh hope and he makes a mention of his morning meditation and there was just the slightest hint of silicon valley ceo nonsense to make it again what it had to be Absolutely. I mean, and, and I, I dare say he layered it enough where you got this sense of um, does he actually do morning meditation or is this just some kind of, you know, yes, as I was having my kale, you know, in my electric car, like just is it is it a little, you know, he's just kind of talking the talk, even though he kind of knows that he's uh, that he's full of it. Pete, one thing I do want to mention, though, is I, I, I sensed that the story wanted one more teensy little thing with him. You might recall that there's the, um, the guy in the suit, Frank, who appears in two scenes. One is in the Shrinko room and, you know, I have some concerns. And then the next, in the next scene, he's come out of the bathroom and gets turned into a little blob. I had wondered if this character, Frank, if they wrote it with the hopes that they could get Kevin Spacey to do, to do a cameo, not needing to connect to House of Cards, but certainly, you know, the Kevin Spacey character named Frank. And how great would it have been if you just see Spacey there and you go, I didn't know Spacey was in this. What's going on? And then the next scene, boom, and he's wiped away. And, you know, a little uh, little uh, victory there for uh, old representative Peter Russo. It would have been uh, delicious. With that, Pete, I think we have uh, one more person here, uh, a familiar face on the old dossier. We do. That would be uh, Anthony Mackey's Falcon, Sam Wilson character, cast here as a nod to the Avengers that uh, Ant-Man in the comics helped to uh, found and will be joining come Captain America Civil War. What? Yeah. We can't know that until the end of the movie. But we know that. Indeed. Um to get them over the, uh, you know, I, I said to Matt in the theater, and it, of course this was the second time I had seen the film, but, uh, the, you know, The completed Matt, film, not the first time you had seen <laughs> footage from it. Right. Matt, what what was the setting there? Did you catch it? Upstate New York, 
course, you see the the gigantic A with the arrow on it. All right, this is the Avengers facility. So, you know, it had been no secret. It had been in the advertising that Falcon would appear. And to have the uh, hero fights another hero trope before they can unite for the greater good given Ant-Man's powers and given the not one note, but certainly lesser abilities of an Avenger like uh, Falcon at this point, uh, it was a good inclusion and brought fully uh, around by the very end of the credits, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Whereas I think some of the weaknesses in Age of Ultron surrounded, as I said earlier, this kind of story requirement to address things in the past and to set things up for the future, uh, kind of reminiscent Avengers 2 of Iron Man 2 that, that suffered from the same uh, the same problem. Um, this inclusion here of Falcon was so organic, it seemed effortless. Of course, you know, you need a Stark thing. And uh, to be honest, I would have to go back and look. I know it's some important piece of tech that makes the thing and the who's he what's and the green lights turn green instead of That's red. That's exactly what it did. It, it existed to be given from one character to another and to be placed into something and to glow blue. That's exactly what they needed. That That's what it did. But, I mean, again, you recognize that as you're watching the movie when, you know, oh, I got the thing. And then later on, they plug the thing into another thing and whatever. You can recognize that even as you're watching it on one viewing, as you were sitting in the theater, not talking about it, you know, not even having an opportunity to reflect. You can still see that the writer has done this for that reason. But it also just works. That's kind of the, the, the stupendous thing about this film that had four writers on it credited along with an official uncredited rewrite and then other dialogue by two other people. Um, You, you see proof of writer, but it nonetheless works so, so wonderfully because fine. If you backtrack from, they need the thing to glow blue for whatever. And then, well, it's going to be a stark thing. And and it's, you know, they lead you down this path so wonderfully and it's so exciting. And it feels like, like Falcon was not shoehorned in at all. And it's to the credit, the great, great credit of the film that he's then used in two subsequent scenes. So it feels even less cheap in terms of the, Hey, we're going to have a crossover moment. Everybody see it. Everybody see it. Um, fantastic conclusion there. Falcon. Seamless. Welcome to level seven. Time to analyze and theorize Matt. We will begin with Janet Van Dyne the wasp knowing you know kind of the the bare bones about the ant-man story and the fact that they were including multiple ant-mans uh in this um i i would not have thought that they would have gone um both essentially backward and forward with with including wasp as you know mother and daughter at least by implication with the latter um but it served such a wonderful story point there. This notion that this is what has driven, uh, this is what has driven the Michael Douglas character to to really, you know, curtail all of this and to recognize the the overwhelming power that gives him overwhelming responsibility to 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 not let this technology out there. And um, 
it, you know, it ends up in the middle of the story, ends up being revealed as kind of the the genesis of what has what has driven all the events that we've seen thus far. Um, and, you know, we have this little tease of we have this little tease of, well, who is it? And, you know, we of course, it's it's, you know, not ever shown on screen, um, but a really fun kind of uh, twist and turn there with Wasp. I have also founding Avenger from the comics and Matt, we get a picture of her. The hat is over the face. I think where they went with, uh, you know, um, the daughter and the appearance and everything like that. And coupled with Douglas's remarks, two things. One, uh, Catherine Zeta Jones would be a very organic get if they are going to go there in the sequel. And uh, two, the subatomic realm or the quantum uh, realm there that they talk about, uh, I would think we would be fair in saying um, she's really not dead as long as we remember her or can find her. (laughs) Or can find the story interest to go get her yeah i think that's i think that's a factor too particularly as we are headed towards what will what will probably be the lowest uh box office opening for a marvel movie um nonetheless you know very highly highly enjoyed movie you know how much how much space is taken up in the marvel effort the marvel movie making effort to to do Ant-Man 2 quickly involving, you know, secret reveal and return of mom versus Ant-Man in future Avengers mashup movies. And that's, and then maybe a little bit with another wasp and that's about it. You know, time will tell there. Marvel certainly builds in plenty of, uh, I won't even say trap doors. I think multiple routes where you can say, well, you know, we, we can do a hardcore Ant-Man trilogy or we can do a really good Ant-Man you know, two-part movie thing, or if we're just adding to the to the to the you know the the palette here, so be it. How about that uh, Spider-Man shout-out, though, Matt? It was fantastic, and as somebody who who prognosticated not not prognosticated, but somebody who who declared um, months ago that if we didn't have a Spider-Man cameo in Avengers Two, we would get it in Ant-Man. While I was proven wrong about that, this is such an anticipated thing, the, the, the inclusion of Spider-Man in Marvel, you know, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that when that line came, we have a guy who can jump, who can swing, who can crawl up walls. Actually, it was said, we've got a guy who can jump, who can swing, who can climb up walls. Uh, well, crawl up walls, because he's a wall crawler. Um, re- regardless, it was so... That that made me say, you know what, this isn't a secret scene at the end. It's not, you know, that fake footage out there of, you know, guy cleaning window and there's Spider-Man in the background. Um, this makes me want to earn Spider-Man's presence, large or small, in, in um, Civil War. And then this makes me want to kind of, you know, put down the, you know, hooray, Disney Marvel, boo, Sony. Um all of that and say you know what make a great spider-man movie let's throw some cameos in there some in-world references or whatever it might be welcome home spider-man and this is the first reference of 
as I saw online somewhere, it's maybe this is just an urban myth right now. Maybe this is just a rumor. Pete, maybe some young fella, future journalism major, who knows, still in high school, maybe he's gotten a few snaps of this guy selling it to a local paper. Um, but it's it's early in his story, and it's just so obviously pregnant with possibility. And you talk about the obvious. You we're less than three weeks out from the casting announcement of Tom Holland that they would somehow be able to film something and integrate it here into the film was nigh impossible when the film was locked two and a half weeks ago. So that they're even able to get a mention into it, having closed the deal with Sony in the spring is something of a minor miracle given where those two studios were prior to uh, another real life hacking heist. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, (laughs) Yes. I, I, it's worth pausing perhaps a moment to sit and say, did, and uh, I mean, I don't mean to make, make a joke here but i think it's it's something worth pondering you know that that act of of cyber terror and i don't mean to poo-poo the second half of that it was certainly a terror attack um the 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 conversations that you and i and many people had in terms of do i want to go see the interview in a theater what does that say about my safety do i want to rent it on online with my credit card that's attached to my name what does that say you know kind of that was a large that 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 had a huge effect and a real effect and a negative effect but it did also bring spider-man back to the 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 co-bosom of marvel um i will disagree slightly though i think the fact that the 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 fact that the deal was done meant they're going to cast somebody and that somebody is going to be plopped into a suit and going to be in civil war so the fact that the deal was done, you could now make that reference without without fear of lawsuits from, you know, from Sony, both domestic and, and uh, international. How about the Wasp here? We get the mid-credits sequence where a new suit is shown to Hope Van Dyne. Uh, what do you make of that there, Matt? Pete, the line, it's about damn time. That is a line not just meant to be a cute, a cutesy little, you know, uh, moment for hope or a cutesy little, hey, there's all the dudes in in the Avengers and then the lady who can kind of punch. Um, It's I looked at that as nothing less than a pact from Marvel back to the audience saying, we have heard you. We have heard that you want more female superheroes we're getting that underway with Scarlet Witch uh, and, you know, kind of added to the mix here. Um, I, Pete, was completely blown away by by that um, scene. I had no idea that Evangeline Lilly had a multi-picture deal, let alone might now appear as a superhero as opposed to, you know, the, the Jane of Thor, if you will. Um, totally blown away by it. The notion that you know, again, depending on what you want to do with Ant-Man movies in the future, the fact that you can um, insert her into multiple movies, we still have Captain Marvel ahead. Um, it, it, to me, it just seemed to be to be a promise from the studio to everybody else. We are going to be more inclusive. We're going to in- increase the profile specifically here of female superheroes. And there's already you know work underway to include 
uh, superheroes of color as well. So to me, it was just it was spot on perfect. It was. And lastly, Matt, the end credit scene, which we were both openly aghast that so many people in the theater uh, either had no interest in seeing or were unaware that we would get really both of them. Quite a, a few people left yeah. before the initial uh, Wasp reveal. Um, we have uh, Bucky Barnes there in the custody of um, Sam Wilson and uh, Steve Rogers as Captain America. Uh, reference made to letting Tony know that they were unable to do so because of the accords. But, of course, Sam knows a guy. Pete, I think this clearly is the first clue that um, much of Captain America Civil War will be about who on the Avengers gets a sponsorship for the new 2016 Honda Accord. Um, And I'm certainly excited, and I hope that they hear our excitement and give us some cars, too. I I didn't know they all needed cars. I mean, Tony Stark doesn't really need a car. Thor doesn't need a car. But you know what? It's it's the product placement that counts. And, uh, you know, I know after this we're going to go out for some Baskin-Robbins, so... But uh, joking aside, I just I thought it was absolutely fabulous to use this scene, which no surprise was not shot for Ant-Man that, you know, was shot um, as uh, footage from Captain America Civil War. The Russo brothers have said that this scene probably will be included in the movie, perhaps with alternate takes you know, in Civil War with alternate takes or different pacing or that kind of thing. The casual reference to the Accord. I heard the Accord. You heard the Accords. It is indeed the Accords, Matt. I can, uh, you can book that. Fair enough. Um, I'm sure that in Civil War, it'll obviously be introduced and discussed and then be a thing. And then they'll make reference to it in this scene. The fact that it's just thrown out there. I mean, not for nothing. If you have familiarity with the Civil War storyline, it does have some resonance. Um quite good graphic novel by the way uh at least the collection of the different civil war stories worth worth checking out ahead of uh, ahead of next summer but um just i i i loved that it was this kind of non sequitur of well, well what is that what does that mean um and then you can you know start to tie it into whatever knowledge you might have for for civil war transmissions. let's check the wire and open our mailbag Pete, I want to start by saying had a really nice chat on Twitter with uh, Tatiana Torres. That's at uh, Princess De Leon on, uh, on Twitter. And, uh, you know, Pete, she knows, all listeners know, I run spoiler free. Uh, now, obviously, this was after, after watching Ant-Man. Um, but she said, she just put out an all call on Twitter. Hey, I have, you know, have all, I have questions and thoughts and this and that, the other. And I replied, Hey, let's have the chat here. If you want to be spoiler free, you know, uh, send a, uh, you know, send a direct message. Had a really nice chat on direct message about uh, the Triskelion, about some of the, the Spidey stuff. Um, the It's about damn, damn time thing. She noticed, uh, you know, it's poignant with this call for, for more female heroes. So, I, I mean, nothing, it, it's not, we didn't discuss anything that wasn't uh, particularly covered, uh, you know, covered in our podcast today, but it was just another reminder how how great it is to be interacting with people uh on the the various uh, social medias as is and uh a nice a nice chat there from a from a from a pal online 
we have the best listeners and followers. Well, Pete, what uh, listening opportunities are ahead of us? Well, we're coming up, Matt. We're coming out of our season. And as the fall approaches, they'll begin to pick up. Uh, San Diego Comic-Con now over Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is in production for its third season. And again, we have seasons one and two, every single episode analyzed, which you can find both on iTunes and fantasticgeek.com. All one word there spelled with a PH. Um, as Agent Carter uh, gets cranking, uh, that season one also available. <clears throat> and don't forget that we have Jessica Jones, the next Marvel Netflix exclusive, which is deep into its first season production. Uh, and we will be dropping our first full length episode preview uh, sometime next month in August. We do have a brief preview there just to give you a taste, just to give you a little bit of, a, of the tone that you could expect with that yeah it's amazing to think that uh, things will be heating up indeed uh either late august or early september we'll do a shield preview probably more september on that one since shield isn't starting i believe until the last tuesday of uh of september and uh it certainly is a it's going to be a bright busy future ahead shield jessica jones 10 episodes of agent carter don't know how that's going to affect uh the the shield order and then uh, presumably uh, next, not even presumably, well, I guess pre there is more Daredevil coming. Presumably it is next spring. Um, but certainly uh, high times ahead for uh, for the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all our podcasts, as you mentioned, Pete, that are on uh, fantasticgeek.com, as well as uh, if you search Fantastic Geek on iTunes, you'll find, you'll find them all. S.H.I.E.L.D., Jessica Jones, Pop Culture Podcast, Daredevil, uh, Agent Carter. It's, uh, it's good times. Even a little bit of Star Wars Rebels, if that, uh, you know, <clears throat> hits your fancy here for the summertime. And another way to uh, ensure that your words make our podcast is to get yourself over there on iTunes and leave us a review for any of our various podcasts. You help us. You help others find us with your words. And in fact, Pete, we're not going to fully announce stuff quite yet, but we uh, we will have a, a good giveaway in the month of August for uh, for reviews across the family of podcasts. In fact, Pete, we can just make the start date for that today, July 19th, until a close date to be determined. Maybe we'll announce it, Pete, um, uh, maybe online ahead of uh, when we do the Jessica Jones preview or we'll announce it on the Jessica Jones preview. We'll get that figured out. And, and listeners, you'll certainly know well in advance. But we'll do a, a good giveaway in August and a real good giveaway in, uh, in late September. Something that, uh, well, something that followed us home from uh, the last convention we went to. Looking forward to it. Well, Pete, you know what else people look forward to is interacting with you on Twitter. How can they do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, -E -E 5,985 followers. Can't be wrong. Indeed, that number ever-growing. And you can find me on Twitter, where I am looking back lost. But most importantly, be in touch with the podcast. You could be like Tatiana. 
and uh, reach out to us on the Twitter, where we are at Fantastic Geek. You can send an email to fantasticgeek at gmail.com. You can visit and leave comments on the .com, fantasticgeek.com. But wait, Pete, there's one more. Facebook.com forward slash Fantastic Geek. One word, again, with the PH. Just another point of contact for Matt and me. Well, if you're listening to us in the pop culture feed, we will be back uh, later in the week to continue our Star Wars Rebels commentary tracks. Uh, certainly getting high up in the episode count there. Uh, if you're listening to us on one of the other feeds, we'll, uh, we'll next talk on the, uh, the Jessica Jones feed in August. And then before that, there'll be Agent Carter previews and there'll be S.H.I.E.L.D. previews and uh, probably even throwing a Daredevil preview in there at some point as well. So... Uh, with that, Pete, I know I'm just about out of words, so I will give you the final word. Baskin Robbins always finds out. Yeah.